Hey, my name is Jason. I'm the producer of It Starts With Attraction. I wanted to let you know that we have a brand new website solely dedicated to working on your pies. Introducing ItStartsWithAttraction.com. You can listen to every episode, learn about the pies, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to ItStartsWithAttraction.com. It starts with attraction, one word. It starts with attraction.com to get signed up today. This week on It Starts With Attraction. Today we're talking about relationship addiction and codependency, which typically aren't things that I talk about, but I think that there are some core aspects of these terms that are out there that we can really learn from and how to make ourselves better. And there might be some ways that these things are showing themselves in your own life and in your relationships. So we're going to be talking about those things. Love bombing, love addiction, codependency, these terms, which again, I don't typically use, but what do they mean and what's really at the core of them? That's what we're going to get to in today's episode. Today, I'm interviewing Sherry Gaba. She is a licensed social worker and a life coach who's helped many people with codependency, love addiction, and toxic relationships. She's appeared on CNN, Inside Edition, E! News, among many other things such as LA Times, The New York Post, and Psychology Today. And we're going to be talking about, as I said, relationship addiction and codependency. Let's dive in to today's episode. There's a process to falling in love, and it starts with attraction. Join Kimberly Beam Holmes and her special guests as they discuss how to become the most attractive you can be physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, or as we refer to it, working on your pies. We'll teach you how to have better relationships and become more attractive to others, and maybe more importantly, to yourself. It starts with attraction, and it starts now. I'm excited to be talking with you today, Sherry. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really grateful to be here and to spread my message. And thank you for the work you're doing in the world. Absolutely. So today we are going to be talking about love addiction, toxic relationships, obsessive relationships, a lot of stuff to cover. But as an entry point question, what is love addiction? When you talk about that, what what are you talking about and what are the symptoms of it that people may want to look for? Sure. So love addiction, a lot of people think of love addiction as obsessive love. So it's a process addiction. So some people think of substance abuse, alcohol, drugs, et cetera. But process addictions can be things like, you know, gaming or shopping or spending. And it can also be love. And it's uh, a mood altering activity rather than actually a drug. But it actually has the same euphoric effects that a mood altering substance might have. So love addiction is really, it becomes someone's whole identity. They, it's really the relationship is what defines them. If a breakup occurs, they, um, they long for that attachment, all those pleasurable feelings that they have in that lost relationship, just like a drug user is missing their drug fix. So they have a lot of codependency traits. They over adapt to what others want. And the reason they do this is they end up settling for less because they want to be with someone no matter what. I mean, being alone is just so scary to them. Um, they have absolutely no boundaries because of that. They'll, they'll, do, they'll do anything just to be in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And they have an intense fear of letting go. They have an intense fear of the unknown. Um, they're always trying to change others to fit what they want. They're kind of in love with an illusion rather than really who the person is. 
Um, they need others to feel whole and they look for others for affirmation and validation. There's just no sense of self. Everything is from the outside in. Um, they have a fear of abandonment. That was one of my huge issues. Um, and they even have withdrawal symptoms, just like a drug addict would have. Um, you know, they just give up who they are. They lose parts of themselves out of the fear that they'll be alone or that they won't have someone's approval. So it really does become their, their obsession. So is love addiction the same as codependency or are they two different things? Yeah, they, I, I say every love addict is a codependency. I mean, this is just my opinion. I think every love addict uh, has a lot of the people-pleasing traits. It has the traits of needing validation. It has the traits of wanting to fix others. But you can be a codependency and not be a love addict. So you could be a codependent at work. You could be a codependent, you know, at your PTA or at your church or temple or synagogue. Um, codependents don't necessarily have to be love or romance addicts, but I think every love addict definitely has traits of codependency. Hmm. And I, I see also from your website and your bio that you are licensed psychotherapist. So you've received your master's of social work. Are either of these two things, love addiction or codependency, parts of the DSM, or if they're not, then where are these things coming from? Like where have uh, both of these names and the signs and symptoms that go with them, what are they based in? No, they're definitely not in the DSM. Um, I think you might find something similar, like you might find a dependency personality dis disorder that might be in the dis DSM, but um, actual love addiction and codependency, really, they're not in there. Um, these are things that have been created by, uh, really, to be honest, the 12-step community, the first yeah. one being Alcoholics Anonymous, and then mm -hmm. later morphed into Codependence Anonymous, which would be for a family member of an alcoholic. And then that got morphed into much more than that. Codependency just kind of blew up and became much more than just being the partner of an addict. It mm -hmm. became more about losing yourself to be with someone, trying to fix, manipulate, and change someone so that uh, they'll be what you want them to be. And then love addiction, same thing. There's 12-step programs for love addiction and sex addiction. So they come from a really great line of great programs. The 12-step program is one of the best programs, but you know, uh, it, it isn't actually a mental disorder, but I, I would I would say that it's definitely obsessive and mm. uh, there is such thing as obsessive disorder. Uh, may not be the kind where you know you're going to, you know, wash your your hands a million times a day, but you're definitely obsessing or ruminating over somebody else. You know, sort of like the drug addict is obsessing over the drugs or the alcohol. The love addict or the codependent is obsessing over that person or pretty much persons, places, or things. Interesting. So, can someone be a love addict? with one person, like, so thinking about in a steady relationship or in a marriage where they are wanting all of those things, like the, the attention, the pleasure seeking things like you were talking about, but the main focus is one person, or is it typically that they're looking for it from multiple different people? Oh no, they can be a love addict of one person. Absolutely. But when they're not in a relationship, they might be on those dating apps. They might be looking for, you know, I can't tell you how many people come to me where they're addicted to the dating apps, which in essence, they're really addicted to the hit of getting the attention, which is a form of love addiction for sure. But yeah, it can be either one person you're addicted to, um, or it can be 
again, multiple people that you're trying to get to, you know, attach to you so that you don't feel alone. And I see a lot of it on internet dating for sure. Mm, Yeah. Got it. So what is love bombing? So love bombing is that thing that happens when somebody starts, you know, sending you all kinds of lavish gifts. They are really kind of sucking you in super fast to be in a relationship it's very over the top dating. It doesn't, it, it's, it's, um, it's when you first, you know, usually when you first meet someone, um, they trying to sweep you off your feet. It's very fun and exciting. They seem very charming. Um, again, they're, they're buying you all these gifts. Um, they're, they're just doing all these over the top gestures, you know, buying you dozens of flowers, um, that, you know, they're taking you on fancy vacations that they may be saying things to you like, Oh, you're the only one. Um, I love everything about you. You're going to be my wife or husband. I've never met anyone as perfect as you. You're the only person I want to spend time with. So these are, these aren't necessarily harmful, but it's definitely a red flag that someone is trying to kind of suck you in. And often love bombing is done by those that we call narcissists, which I know there's a lot out there right now. So I don't like to overuse the word, but, you know, toxic individuals tend to use love bombing as a way to hoover you in because, um, you know, they have their own abandonment issues. And so just by hoovering you in really fast, they can sort of take you hostage and they, they'll they think that, you know, you won't want to be with anybody else. So it's their way of getting you into the relationship super fast, super furious. And generally it doesn't work. <clears throat> they do a lot of, you know, over calling, over texting, um, you might be, they might be hoovering or kind of over, they may be looking at your social media all the time. Um, there's just this constant over the top communication and it's definitely a red flag. And, you know, if someone's texting you all the time, morning, you know, evening and afternoon, there's usually some kind of problem. Now they, they want your undivided attention. Um, they're, they just want to focus in on you and you want, they want you to focus in on them. And then if you don't do that, if you're not giving them that attention, they might get really angry. So um, they're always, you know, trying to convince you that they're your soulmate. Um, Again, saying things like we were born to be together. It's fate that we met. You understand me more than anyone. We're soulmates. You know, they want a commitment really fast. Uh, One telltale sign of someone who really is toxic is when you try to set a boundary, when you try to say no, they just won't have it they become, you know, really furious and angry. And so that's definitely a sign that you, you're in a toxic relationship, most likely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, I, and I bring up toxic relationships with love addiction because often love addicts get into toxic relationships because remember, <clears throat> they don't want to be alone no matter what. So they're going to fall prey to anybody that is going to, first of all, give them all that attention because they already feel sort of insecure. They don't want to be alone. So a toxic individual knows exactly how to, you know, they have like the radar for that person. Does a lot of this stem from attachment styles, do you think? Like the person who doesn't want to be alone, is it really the core of it that they are more in that preoccupied attachment style? And so whoever's going to give them attention, they are more likely to kind of go with whatever they want to do or just say yes to that relationship because of that fear? It's a combination of that, of definitely an attachment desire, like the one you just mentioned, or um, an anxious attachment, like they just can't be alone. So you're absolutely right. Many love addicts have an anxious attachment. I think you said ambivalent. Is that what you said? 
I said preoccupied, which is the anxious. Yeah. Yeah. The anxious. So yes, absolutely. I think most of them do. They can also be a love avoidant or they can be both. They can be like love avoidant, love addict, love avoidant, love addict. They can kind of waffle back and forth. That's more of a disorganized attachment style, but it really comes from the history of of toxic relationships with our parents. That's usually what leads us to men and women who we can recreate that familiar toxic cycle. You know, our destiny is really dictated by our subconscious desires to somehow resolve those issues that we never were able to fix. You know, it's somehow if I can fix you, then I'm going to fix, you know, subconsciously these parents that were abusive or abandoned me or neglected me or were unavailable. Um, But if a parent was there for you, let's say a father who um, was there for us, for example, the father who who fails to, or is not there for you or fails to protect their child from abuse, then the mother and the mother was might maybe was emotionally distant. There's this tendency to attract men in our lives that are often similar. Like you'll often see someone who had an alcoholic parent be attracted to an alcoholic or your parent was neglectful or not available uh, physically or mentally. You're going to attract that. Um, this is all just something that we're doing to recreate that familiar feeling. So it's all, it all stands from where we were raised, our relational experiences that we had as children. Um, And if, and if it begins, if we weren't properly able to develop this sense of self, this core self, then we don't even really know who we are. You know, often codependents and love addicts felt very invisible. So then they don't even know who they really are. And then they are going to be prone to picking whoever because they don't really have a sense. If I don't know who I am, how am I going to know what I want for myself? How am I going to know what my preferences are? So um, it, it just runs very deep. Um, our addiction to toxic relationship is really with ourselves. The relationship really starts with connecting back to ourselves. That's why a lot of the work I do with people that are love addicts or codependents is working with the trauma piece, really getting in touch and connecting back to themselves to find out who they are and to actually embody themselves, connect with themselves, not be afraid to be alone, learning how to self-soothe, learning how to self-regulate their emotions so that they can be comfortable in their own skin. Um, You know, they often say the opposite of addiction is connection. So if you don't have that connection with yourself, you're always searching outward to connect with somebody else. Yeah, that was, that was going to be my next question of if a lot of this, whether they're the person in the relationship that is the obsessive one, like the one doing the pursuing that hard or the person in the relationship who's being pursued, but doesn't, doesn't know how to set their boundaries. And if, if those things, if a lot of those things are based in childhood experiences, then what is the path to, working through those in a healthy way so that you can then have healthier relationships. So, yeah, it goes back to the connection with yourself, right? So if you, again, aren't comfortable in your own skin, you don't know how to self-soothe. You don't know how to, like love addicts are just absolutely fear, fearful of being alone. That is their worst fear. Uh, they, they just can't even fathom not being in a relationship. Being coupled up is everything. So we got to first get them comfortable. Like, again, it sounds so basic, but most people aren't comfortable in their own skin, especially people that have had a history of trauma. Um, because to them, it's like going back to being that lonely child, that child that was neglected, that child that was abused. So yeah. they're going to do, do anything to run from that. And that running from that is what is the addiction. Um, so that's why learning to, to 
set, like I said, self-soothe. That is the path, you know, also having a, a community, you know, just like AA works for alcoholics, having some kind of community where you don't feel alone. Um, and then if you have a community, you know, you don't necessarily need to attach to someone. You, you're kind of a, you're kind of attaching to this community, but that's a healthy attachment, right? Because you're getting positive feedback, you're getting uh, positive attention, you're getting positive validation, you're not feeling alone. So those, those are the ways. And then, you know, finding a really, really good trauma therapist. Um, some of the mm. things that I do are somatic work where people learn how to release energy in their body that's stuck, that's toxic, that needs to be discharged. Um, I work with the polyvagal system to help them regulate um, how to open up that vagus nerve so that they feel more comfortable, more calm, or more feel safe. You know, we're always trying to move towards a secure relationship. That is, that is the goal of our work with someone who has these these issues. For the listeners who don't know what self-soothing means or polyvagal, you know, those are terms. And I know there's been some other episodes in the past where we've talked about polyvagal theory and, and things, but help us understand. So first of all, what does it mean to self-soothe? And then secondly, what is the polyvagal system and how does, how does that correlate with what we're talking about? Right. So, so self-soothing is that you, you can be with yourself, you can be in your body. And so often when you have a history of trauma, there's a lot of energy that has not been released. You know, you had, when you went through whatever trauma you went through, you had a fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response. So these were your adaptive behaviors to be able to cope. So you didn't have the ability to cope in healthier ways. So self-soothing is learning how to cope in healthier healthier ways. Um, the, the, the ventral vagal system, we have three systems in our nervous system. We have the sympathetic, which is the fight flight. And then we have something called the dorsal vagal, which is more uh, collapse, uh, numbing out, uh, depression, self-medicating, tuning out, disassociating. And then we have the ventral vagal, which is where we live in calm. We live in safety. We live in security. It's kind of that Zen place within ourselves. So you think of it as a ladder. Those three stages are always working together. Um, and we want to actually work them together, but always be moving towards that calm ventral vagal place. Um, so, so if obviously if you're in a calm ventral vagal space, there isn't this discomfort inside yourself to run from yourself. You actually feel this regulation in your nervous system. You're not, you're not overly impulsive. You're not overly reactive. You're not, um, looking for something to comfort you to help like right. self-soothing things that self-soothing that are unhealthy would be like drugs or alcohol or a relationship or anything to make you feel good on the inside instead of feeling in good on the inside from within and out. I mean, self-soothing is the ability to be in your own system without needing something else to, um, to make it okay for you you know, someone else to validate you, to give you attention. Um, because it, it's always going to be a lose-lose, you know, looking outward. It's really about looking inward. And that is the ability to self-soothe, to be able to look inward, be inward, and be present in our bodies without having to run from our bodies. Yeah. And the the I think an important thing to note as well is that the this polyvagal system that we're talking about, there's actually a vagus nerve. Right. Yes. And it stems from, it starts somewhere in, at the base of the brain, at the top of the brain. Where does it start? And it goes all the way down. 
Yeah, I don't get into all that stuff. That's all kind of like brain science stuff. I know people love that stuff. I just yeah. don't really go into all that. I just I just talk to, talk about it as a ladder that we do have these three systems that work together beautifully. And yes, the vagus nerve would be where the ventral vagal is. And that's the part that we want to actually um, work towards. I mean, there's so many great things we can do to open the ventral vagal. We can journal, we can go in nature, we can go in the water. Um, I'm, I move part-time to the ocean. Being by the ocean can open up yeah. that ventral vagal. Walking, bicycling, um, meditating, co-regulating with someone who's safe, uh, touching, hugging, maybe touching our face, touching our head, touching mm -hmm. our heart. I mean, there's just so many beautiful ways to open up that system, which is the beginnings of self-soothing. Yeah. Yeah. I've also heard that doing things to like stimulate movement in the back of the throat. So gargling or singing or oh, yeah. humming or, or closing your ears and humming um, is a great way to do that. Throwing cold water on your face can mm. actually do that. I mean, you know, we have the ability to self-regulate. We just don't always know that. And we always think that it has to come from somewhere else. And it really comes from ourselves. It's really not that complicated. I mean, there's so much good stuff out there now on ventral bagel um, information. And, and if they want more of that brain science stuff, lots of great stuff out there. There's uh, yeah. Deb Dana. She's a great author on the subject. Um, Steve Porge, Stephen Porge is the one that actually created this, yeah. this, this, this theory. So definitely if, if you want to really go deeper, check that out. Yeah, that's good. What are some signs that someone is too obsessive in their relationships? So when you first meet someone, you know, you, you may fall in love instantly. You think about them constantly. You're fantasizing about a future together. You're overwhelming your partner with attention. You feel it's your responsibility to fix your partner and make them perfect. Um, you're not really your authentic self with your partner. You're always trying to kind of turn yourself in a pretzel to make them like you want you so that, again, you don't have to be alone. Um, you're always changing yourselves to suit them. You're actually losing parts of yourself to suit them. And again, remember, when you have early trauma, you don't even have a sense of self because nobody was there to mirror that for you. You know, the parents were available or they abandoned you or they neglected you or they were too busy. They were workaholics, whatever it was, they were going through a divorce. They were a single parent. So they weren't really a, a, there to mirror and to connect with you for you to really understand who you are. So that pretty much is, you know, you're going to be obsessed with someone because you don't really have a, a sense of your own self. So you're very hypervigilant. You overreact to the slightest signs that your partner's no longer interested and you feel empty and lost or unworthy if you're not in a relationship. <clears throat> yeah. What are the signs that you are, I mean, you've, you've mentioned some of these a little bit ago, but what are some of the signs that you are in a toxic relationship and that um, maybe you're that person who is the love addict but you're justifying a lot of the things that, that the pursuing partner is doing, but maybe it's not healthy. What are some of those things? You mean, what are the signs of a toxic relationship? I'm sure, I'm, yeah, that, that could be one. Yes. Let's, let's do that one. <laughs> so a toxic relationship is where you do a lot of ruminating and obsessing, which we just talked about. You know, you're always worrying about your partner. You're always obsessing about them. Where are they? What are they doing? Um, 
you know, if you're in a toxic relationship, you notice all these real subtle changes in their texts. You're very hypervigilant to what's going on and you want to spend every minute with them. And there's a lot of walking on eggshells because often this toxic person can be abusive or can be a narcissist. They may be gaslighting you, projecting things onto you. So you're always like on guard. Um, you know, you should, should I, you're asking yourself, should I say this? What, what, you know, should I ask for that? Like, well, how are they going to respond? You're always like trying to anticipate their next move. Then you feel guilty about everything. You know, when you're in a toxic relationship, you feel like you're the guilty one. Um, one of the sure signs of a toxic person is not taking responsibility for their actions and shifting the blame to people around them. So they're very good at pro projecting. And so then you take on all the guilt and blame. There's a lot of fighting, a lot of fighting that goes on and it can turn into physical as well. It starts out maybe verbal, can turn into physical, a lot of manipulation and controlling and critical. They're, they're highly critical, highly controlling, highly manipulative. And it's very insidious. You sometimes don't even realize you're being manipulated. Um, a lot of yelling, a lot of insulting, again, a lot of criticizing, physical injuries, possibly a lot of disrespect. Um, a lot of dishonesty, a lot of lying, a lot of betrayal, trauma, cheating. And then the most important thing is that you stop taking care of yourself. So if you notice, you know, I've been in relationships where suddenly it's all about them. I stop, you know, maybe exercising or I stop focusing on my family or whatever it is because they become my object of, of desire 24 seven. And I'm trying to please them. And if you have those codependent traits or you are a love addict, you are going to even do that. Um, you're going to do that even more than the average person, because that is your whole, the only way you feel good about yourself is somebody needing you. You, And so you're going to make yourself feel needed. You're going to, you're going to take them hostage with you. They're going to take your hostage. You're going to have people that are just in a very dysfunctional dance. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned the self-soothing earlier, but really the, the place that I want to end on here. And the final thing I want us to talk about is, so where do you go from here? If you are either of those two people, and we've talked about the self-soothing, but what is the hope for turning things around to be able to be um, comfortable with yourself and also show up in the best way possible in a future relationship. So you're going to start just from the beginning, looking at every relationship that enters your life is an opportunity to heal and grow and become more self-aware. You're not going to do a lot of the blaming and shaming, even though it's a really easy place to go. Um, your focus really has to shift from the outside in, you know, every relationship is manifested into our lives to mirror really the relationship we have with ourselves. So if you're picking toxic people, you probably have a toxic relationship with yourselves. And that's where you want to begin. You want to find a really great trauma therapist like myself or somebody that does things like somatic work, EMDR. It's really important to work on that trauma piece. You can't just um, take a course and then think that you're going to be fixed. Yeah. You really have to do the deeper dive and find a really great trauma therapist. Um, maybe work on some aspects of yourself that have to do with your mind, your body, your spirit, finding a really great, maybe 12 step program or joining a program like mine. I have a community, a tribe of people that are healing uh, from toxic relationships. Um, and, you know, again, we can recondition ourselves and we can become addicted to a healthy self. We are immensely valuable and colorful and vibrant and strong individuals, and we have the possibility so there to, to get help and there's always hope. 
Mm, I love that. Sherry, will you tell us a little bit more about your membership and where our listeners can find you and follow you? So basically, um, they can go to sherrygaba.com if they want to make an appointment for therapy or coaching. And then I have a membership where it's a dollar trial for your listeners. And it's a place, it's like a membership portal. I also do a live group coaching, all kinds of recorded lessons, video lessons on healing from a toxic relationship or codependency. And for your listeners, it's a dollar. And they just go to wakeuprecovery.com forward slash IG one. So that's wakeuprecovery.com forward slash IG one. They can check it out. If they think it's for them, that can stay on. It's $27 a month, but they can check it out for a dollar. See if it's something that fits them and nothing more powerful in my opinion than having a community to work with, to help you get through um, a, a dysfunctional relationship. Yeah. That's good. That's good. And we'll include the links to those things in the show notes, as well as the link to your website. Sherry, thank you so much for being with me today. I've enjoyed our conversation. That was great. Thank you for having me. There's a lot of validity in how the things that we experienced as children and the way that we were parented and the experiences that we had have shaped us for good and sometimes things that we struggle with because of things that we experienced and stories we told ourselves as a kid because of the things that happened to us. I know one of the things I've shared a little bit about on this podcast was there were some things that happened to me when I was younger and the story that I have told myself through the years has been, I have to protect myself because no one else will. And that is that is my reaction based on my peripheral experience like based on my point of view of the things that happened to me when i was when i was a kid some of those different circumstances because of my point of view that's the story that i told myself because that's how i saw it right other people if they had been looking at the situation and looking at me may not see quite how i got there, but that doesn't matter. We all deal with stress differently. We all internalize it differently. And the stories we tell ourselves about things that have happened to us all affect us differently. And that's why you should never compare yourself to someone else. Even if you had similar experiences in your past, one person may have internalized it and dealt with it one way. You're internalizing and dealing with it a different way and neither of them are wrong, both are true for you. The key is how do you work through it to stop telling yourself that story? Because I told myself that story, that I had to protect myself because no one else will. And that's something that I have carried as a heavy burden for 25 years of my life and what has led to a lot of anxiety in my life because Of course, I'm going to be anxious if what I truly believe is I have to protect me and no one else will, right? So I have had to work through that. And I did some EMDR going back through some of those circumstances in life that begun to tell me that story and worked through them. And it was really helpful, but it's so true. It's really important to go back and deal with what is not serving us well from the stories that we're telling ourselves because we get to change the story. It's still being written and you get to choose if you're gonna change the way that it's going or the way that it's going to end. 
And that doesn't mean having to do it towards someone else. It doesn't mean having to kick people out of your life or, or different things like that. Sometimes it does. But a lot of times it just needs to start with us working on ourselves and becoming the best we can be. And through that also, as Sherry said, learning how to self-soothe, learning how to be able to sit with our uncomfortable emotions, our fears, our anxieties, and calm ourselves down instead of constantly looking to other things or to other people to do that for us. So my key takeaway question for you today is, what is the story that you're telling yourself that isn't serving you well right now. Wrestle with that one. Until next week, stay strong.